full of lives and courage. The prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheels, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain and massive corpses, and, account and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show you to the nation and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms of your and to the kingdom of your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. It, and it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Okay. Verse 1. What is he condemning Assyria for in this one sentence synopsis of their history? Lies? Robbery? What? Bloodshed. Violence. Uh, victimizing, profiteering, exploitation. No sin exists by itself. You always get them in clusters. And uh, this is what Nineveh was known for. Very cruel city. And so, you come to the enemy attack. Now, Verses 2 and 3 are spectacular verses. If you read them, I think the way they're written, you can just hear the battle. Just think about it. This, this overwhelming force that, that overruns Nineveh and, and puts it into the grave. Now, now hear this. The noise of the whip. The noise of the rattling of the wheel. Galloping horses, mounting chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming. Many slain on massive corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Don't you kind of read that and feel the pace of the battle? Then it kind of slows down. <laughs> they just sort of bury them all. And this is, again, this is one reason why Nahum is, is moving. Boy, it describes this. You just feel it. You know, this is this is uh, just an impressive way to, to write this. Uh, and so you have to appreciate that as well as appreciating the message. And it's all because of what in verse 4? Harlotries of the harlot. Yes. Her unfaithfulness to God, her trying to uh, uh, gain uh, from, from the nations. Um, I'm against you. Here, here's this harlot. And by the way, just as a total aside, but the Bible uses the term harlot to describe many different nations. This is Nineveh as a harlot. What other nations were described as harlots? Israel. Israel. Babylon. Babylon. And some others. I just want to put in a, a, a word here. We do such strange things in Bible interpretation. People will jump over to the book of Revelation and they find a harlot in Revelation and they say, Israel is a harlot. Therefore, the harlot in Revelation must be talking about Jerusalem. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's not a good argument. 
The harlot in Revelation could have as well been talking about Nineveh or Babylon or Egypt or any of the other nations that were called harlots in the Bible. Just because you can say, well, the word harlot sometimes means Jerusalem, if it also sometimes means other things, then that doesn't really prove that, well, it has to mean this here. We just need, you know, sometimes we, we do that in Bible study. We'll like say, well, see here, you know, this phrase is used, it was used about this. Therefore, this must be about that. Well, you need to have a control on that. Was it also used about other things? If it was, then that kind of weakens your case. And so we really need to be more comprehensive when we study. This is a clear passage where Nineveh is, is being exposed as a harlot. And, and you know, you think about what a, the image of a harlot. Well, God's going to turn the harlotry against her in verse 5. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness, to the kingdoms your disgrace. You know, he's going to expose her for what she really was. You know, obviously a harlot has been lifting up her skirts a few too many times. But God's going to lift her skirts up in a way that shames her and makes her vulnerable. She reaps what she sows right there. Um, and he's going to throw filth on her. That's pretty ugly. I'm going to set you up as a spectacle. International shame and disgrace is going to replace her pomp and pride. And it will come about that everybody who sees you will just shrink from you. They were captivated by Nineveh's charm and wealth. Now they're all like, we don't want to have anything to do with her. That's worldly friends for you. <laughs> they're here today when you're prosperous and gone tomorrow when you're in trouble. And uh, who will grieve for you? Where will I seek comforters for you? And we go back, uh, and in this book too, we have a play on the name of the prophet. There won't be any Nahum's comforter for, for Nineveh. Isn't that interesting? God found a, a Nahum for his people, a comforter. There won't be any for, for the Assyrians. Comments and questions through verse 7. Emily. I have a question. And these symbols that they use to Well, I think two things. One is, from Romans 1, they could have a God to depart from. All nations should have known God. And think about for Nineveh, even Jonah. And they had knowledge of God. And they were not faithful to God. So I think, I think we shouldn't discount the fact that even the nations were responsible to God. I mean, you know, what about pre-Abraham? You know, there was a relationship of God with the people in the world. They're his world. It's his world. It's his creation. But also, I think harlotry is not only used in the sense of specific unfaithfulness to like a marriage with God. Harlotry is used sometimes for like just... Um, you know, seducing other nations like through materialism and through, uh, you know, uh, immoral party atmosphere, things like that. So harlotry is sometimes more in the sense of the relationship with others. Good question. Adam. Is there any sense in, in the statement there in verse 4 
of it being sort of the because you did the things that you did, you know, because of, because of the immorality of the immoral, because of the murders of the murderer, that they were a wicked nation and therefore they did wicked things. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, not necessarily so much keen on the the harlot comparison as much as what is it that a harlot did. Heartless, you know, what is the Syria did? They did the Syrian type thing, which were weak. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, not even. Yeah. But maybe so. Other thoughts? All right, how about 8 to 13? Are you better than Melanin that was situated by the river uh, that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Buddha uh, and Levin were your helpers, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men. And all our great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge uh, from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees with broken figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the ear. Surely your people in the midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Well, he asks an interesting question. Are you better than Noamon? Noamon is another name for the Egyptian city of Thebes. And uh, guess what happened to Thebes? The Assyrians conquered it in 663. That's exactly right. <laughs> the Assyrians knew all about Thebes, because they were the ones that conquered that city in 663, which, by the way, tells us Nahum could not have been written before 663. That's the absolute earliest possible date. For Nahum, probably not written past about 625, because clearly at this point Nineveh was still in its height and it started to go downhill about then. So probably somewhere between about 663 and 625 was when Nahum was written. But he said, Are you better than the Thebes? Uh, because look at all the advantages that Thebes, Thebes had. It was surrounded by the waters of the Nile, so it, it was, uh, you know, protected by almost like having a moat around it or something. It made it more difficult to invade. And and they had strong allies like Ethiopia and Egypt and Hood and Nubia. And uh, so she had every geographical and political advantage and yet what happened? <laughs> the Assyrians conquered her. You know, she went in captivity. You know, her children were dashed to pieces and so forth. He's saying, you know, look at even a city like Thebes. You know all about that one, by the way. But it went into captivity. Why couldn't you? Are you are you any better situated? Do you have any stronger allies than what they do? You know, it's kind of like 99 godless persons perish, and the 100th one still thinks he's the exception. <coughs> you know, all these other nations, strong and powerful, go down the tubes, but the Assyrians still think, it won't be me. None of us still is sure that, well, we're fine. God's saying, you're not any better than Thebes. You know, Look at what happened to them, it'll happen to you. 
And in fact, you'll become drunk. Probably the idea of the cup of God's wrath they'll be drunk with. And, and you won't have anywhere to go. You'll be like a fugitive in panic. And uh, there'll be no refuge. He says, your fortresses are like fig trees with ripe figs. And we don't have fig trees. But you know how ripe fruit is that grows on a tree? The riper the fruit, the more what? Soft it is. Soft it is. They fall down easier. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if the fruit's fruit's really ripe, it doesn't take any breeze for it just to fall. You know, and, and so he says, you're just like ripe fig trees. You know, shake them a little bit, fall right into the mouth of your enemies. You're just ripe for the taking. Kind of like, we have an expression, maybe this is an old-timey expression, but uh, it's like saying, taking your fortresses is going to be about like taking candy from a baby. You know that expression? That's still... Until used, okay. The idea is it's child's play. It's easy. You know, it doesn't take any effort. You know, just fall right into the arms of the the enemies. Uh, so I, I never know. You know, I've lived long enough now. I have no idea. You know, if my uh, expressions are still uh, used by uh, the generation that was born a few decades after me. So uh, I was born in the fifties, which really uh, dates me, doesn't it? Uh, and then uh, in thirteen. He says, your people are women in your midst. <laughs> we, we'd say that today. You know, if you call somebody a woman, at least in my generation, I think today too, I mean, that'd be a real insult if you call a guy that. I mean, you know, you're really weak. You know, you're just a woman. You can't even defend yourself. So your your strongest uh, soldiers is women. You know, they can't do, they, they, have, they don't have the strength to defend themselves. The gates of your land are just open wide. Like the enemies could just come right through. Fire consumes your gate guards. He's just saying, it's not going to be any trick at all to bring you down, guys. You're nothing. It's like your your city's wide open, and you got a bunch of, of you know weakling women trying to defend you. It's, there's nothing nothing going to happen to uh, to stop the invasion from overwhelming you. Comments, questions. Good stuff, don't you think? Pretty descriptive, pretty powerful, pretty easy to understand. Really, Nahum's not an especially difficult book, but you kind of see what it's talking about. Um, right, look at 14 to 19. Draw for yourself water for the siege, strengthen your fortifications, go into the clay and tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. <clears throat> their, their fire. Will con- their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself <clears throat> like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers. Settling in the stone walls on a cold day, the sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are, they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? 
I think the point of this ultimately is to say that there is nothing that will stop the conquest of Nineveh. In verse 14, what does he encourage him to do? Draw water for your sheep. In other words, get ready. Get ready. Prepare. You know, activate a whole program of preparation. And what will happen? Fire will consume you. Sword will cut you down. Won't make any difference how well prepared you are. Go ahead and try it. You know, that, that won't work. All right, the end of 15 and 16 and 17, what do you see there that won't help them? Yes! You know, having a large army, lots of soldiers, we always take trust and comfort in numbers. It won't help. Have as many as you want to. You know, multiply yourself like the locusts. You know, travel in huge swarms. You know, said have as many as them, it won't make any difference. You can bring out as many as you want to. Now, the Lord's not impressed by numbers. You know, we, we get impressed by that. And what's the first thing somebody asks you uh, when they, they ask you something about your church? How many people have? I'm not against that question necessarily, but that's not what makes a church strong or weak. You know, we're concerned about that. Obviously, we want more people to turn to the Lord. But as far as how, you know, how big we are, the Lord's not impressed by that. He can save by many or by fewer. He can save single-handedly, for that matter. And and how many the enemies are it really doesn't matter. He, he he pictures these locusts. In verse seventeen, he said, "The sun rises and they flee." That's all it's going to take. Just get the sun to rise, and they'll all scatter. So much for the, you know, huge quantity. And then verse 18, their officials won't help them either. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Israel. Nobles are lying down. The people are all scattered. There's nobody to regather them. So, you know, no matter uh, how much preparation they do, no matter how many people they've got, and no matter who their officials are, their leaders, the empire is still going to be totally disintegrated. Nobody will be there to regather them. God could care less how strong we are when he wants to bring us down. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know how foolish it would be for an ant that wanted to defy human beings to decide to start working out. Maybe taking steroids or something. <laughs> no, we're going to defy, you know, mankind. You just make that up. I did. Couldn't tell. I can't live that uh, down. But that was a good illustration, anyway. Uh, you know, it's it's the same thing. You know, think about how God looks at our pathetic, puny efforts to try to rebel against Him. In whatever do we think we can trust in, whatever we're strong in, it's hopeless, it's useless. And he says, you know, there's no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. <clears throat> you know, all who hear about you, well, they'll applaud. You know, because they've all suffered at your hand. And so the world's going to gonna clap when I bring you guys down. You know, that's the, that's the problem with it nation like Assyria. 
you know, nobody's going to grieve their passing, that's for sure. Uh, they've <coughs> been uh, hard enough on everybody else. Uh, one of only two books in the English Bible that ends in a question. The other one is Jonah, both of them about Nineveh, don't know why, but it's a curiosity at least. Comments or questions on Nahum? To go along with your analogy, 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Absolutely. Yeah. God is never threatened by us. You know, God never panics. He never is insecure. I mean, why would he be? <laughs> he has no reason to be. You know, that, that's, you just see, you're going to see God as a whole different level. <laughs> you know, and, and so any efforts to resist God are just absolutely patently foolish. Like you were saying about um, not being impressed in numbers, no, we believe that you know one of God's angels can take out an entire army. Yeah. So what what is it like when God Himself is ready to take vengeance uh, and to seek out His wrath and to get what He rightfully deserves? It's it's just really humbling and and also it it instill helps focus and instill that fear in us that we need to have of the Lord. You're exactly right. Yeah, we need to seek God's greatness like that. That really will help us respect it more and be a whole lot more concerned about pleasing him. Other comments? I just had a question. Was it was Ephaniah at the same time in Gary? <coughs> um close to the same time at least. Maybe just slightly later. Okay. But not much. Other comments? Well, that puts Nahum in books, and uh, good to uh, do that today. I thought uh, Nahum would be uh, fairly easy for us to uh, do along with finishing up Micah, and I guess we'll work on doing another prophet in a couple or three months or whenever we have another Saturday that uh, we can do that.